It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Some brands offer you low finance or cashback or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and €1,000 cashback and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finance is made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See Renault.ie. Blog Talk Radio. No risk it, no biscuit. Coming from the Arizona desert, presented by SBNation.com. For Arizona Cardinals fans, by Arizona Cardinals fans, with outsider and insider's perspective, this is Revenge of the Birds. Good evening, Arizona Cardinals fans. This is Revenge of the Birds Radio. I'm your host, Jess Root. And we are here on a Tuesday night. Unfortunately, it is not a couple of days following uh, Cardinals' victory. It is a couple of days following not only a loss, but an embarrassing loss and a costly loss at that. And we're going to be talking about that. Uh, We will have our regulars, our regular Tuesday night guests with us as we will have been with us. He's actually on the line. How are you doing tonight, Ben? Hey, Jess, everybody. I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing great. Glad to have you on. And in a moment, we'll have Seth connected as well. In the meantime, uh, if you would like to call in and talk to us about Arizona Cardinals football, questions about current situation of the Arizona Cardinals, you can call us tonight by dialing 646-478-3787. And we now have Seth on the line. How are you doing tonight, buddy? Good, Jess. How are you? Doing all right. So let's go ahead and start off with we we actually have a lot to talk about as there's quite a bit of news, unfortunate news coming out of Cardinals land out of here, out of Arizona. Actually, even though the Cardinals are not currently in Arizona, they are spending the week out in Florida. Uh, they will be they will be visiting Tampa Bay on Sunday, and so much like they did in 2009 when they chose to stay out east instead of coming home and then traveling back out there, they are staying out in Florida after they got on a plane after if they left Louisiana and landed in Florida, and they're holed up in a hotel out there and, and, and practicing at one of the facilities out there. Um, talk about the game a little bit as we get started. The game looks really promising as the Cardinals started, started off the game, marched down the field, scored a touchdown, and things looked really good. That was all the points they managed to muster. The Saints scored 31 unanswered points. Now, it, after a, a final score of 31 to 7, it looked really lopsided, and I guess in part it was. However, the game was close 
really kind of close for most of the game within within a score or two. And even though you look at the statistics, you look at the statistics thinking the defense didn't play all that particularly well, you never kind of felt, basically the whole game, you didn't ever felt that the defense seemed to be the problem. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but going down some of the numbers, the Cardinals only ran 55 offensive plays, which is somewhat reminiscent of the 2012 Arizona Cardinals. The Saints ran 74 plays. They gained a total of 423 yards of offense, while the Cardinals mustered up a measly 247 yards of offense. Um, The Carson Palmer. Carson Palmer threw two interceptions, no touchdowns, only 187 yards passing. The Cardinals managed to run for 86 yards, but only on 16 carries. He only attempted to run the ball 16 times the most by Richard Menenhall with nine carries. Uh, Larry Fitzgerald uh, led the team with five receptions, 64 yards, rather ho-hum. And if you look over on the on the side of the Saints, you will see what the problem was. Jimmy Graham, he was targeted 15 times, nine receptions, 134 yards with two touchdowns. And then on top of that, Darren Sproles, four catches for 39 yards and then three carries for 17 yards as well. And Drew Brees looked like Drew Brees. He did get picked off once in the end zone by Tyron Matthew. Very, very nice play. Uh, But he threw for three touchdowns. He had 342 yards passing. uh, Threw the ball 46 times. In fact, really, the, the New Orleans Saints, they basically didn't try to run the ball at all until... Really, until late in the game, the game plan was to pass the ball. Uh, end of the story. End of the story is thirty-one-seven Cardinals lose. They fall to one and two in the season, and yet, as demoralizing as it feels and everything that happened, because there were some key injuries, and we're going to have to get into that. We lost Lorenzo Alexander for the season. We lost Sam Osher for the season. We lost Rashad Johnson with Rashad Johnson with one of a strange, strange injuries. Where inexplicably he lost the finger lost his fingertip on a punt play uh he tweeted out some some kind of gruesome pictures later on and then the latest news that came out today is another yet another injury coming out of the game was that of rookie linebacker Alex Okafor who got his first game experience in the regular season only to now have a season end with a torn biceps um but what we're going to talk about let's get to get into the game a little bit and well, let's just go start. Just basically, what went wrong? What went wrong for this game for the Cardinals? Well, let's start with you. Start with you, Ben, tonight. What went wrong on Sunday? Uh, Mama said there'd be days like this, right? Yeah. <laughs> what went wrong other than everything? Um, the problem on offense, I think, is that the Saints were just able to create too much pressure, and it was just with a four-man rush. I, I thought during the game that they were blitzing a lot because, you know, I think there were more Saints players in the pocket than, than uh, <laughs> they were able to spend more time in there than Carson Palmer was. But if they weren't really blitzing that much, actually. It was just four guys getting the job done. Um, uh, they played Curtis Lofton close to the line of scrimmage pretty often. I think he was spying on our backs or whatever they had him doing. But, yeah, it was pretty much just four guys. And the bottom line there is that it's just tough to beat a defense that can get to your QB with, with only four. You know, it leaves a lot of bodies in coverage. Um, there's a lot of obstacles <laughs> Uh, and if your if your quarterback isn't making plays for whatever reason, uh, you know you can say maybe it was the lack of protection, maybe he was just having a bad hair day, whatever it was. Um, you know, in in that case, you're you're gonna get seven points. You're gonna get 50% completion percentage, and I, that was that was a big part of the problem. The defense held up okay. You know, even with the missed tackles, even with Jimmy Graham running wild, uh, they they pretty much fought the good fight for most of the game, I think, but. The offense just couldn't keep a minute, and uh, we've all heard that story before. So I'm just going to stop there. So, you your turn, Seth. What what is it that just from what your eyes, what went wrong Sunday afternoon? Uh, just more of issues with the offense not getting going. There's clearly timing issues. There's clearly still filling out that needs to be done, and and it's just not close to where you want it to be yet. And at this point, you know, I, I preached personally, and, and it's hard sometimes to do this, but I preached personally that you needed 
patience and you know and and even I'm at the point where you know we're three games in they've they've had you know probably cumulative five games worth of snaps together including the preseason and there's still a lot of timing issues going on and that's that for me is hard to see offensively especially with all of the um the veteran presence that they have um especially in the passing game um i, I don't know if it's a combination of palmer is just kind of turning into kevin cobb in the pocket and so it's making issues with finding receivers and, and it all stems from the offensive line yes but you still have to make plays when you have the opportunity and they're missing a lot of open plays right now. And and I think that's where kind of everything went wrong is that they can't get into any rhythm offensively. And, and what I saw, obviously offense is kind of the theme going on uh, with, well, the offense was more or less the theme on Sunday when they played so poorly. But yeah, you mentioned Chris Carson Palmer looking kind of like Kevin Cobb, and he he, he did with the pressure that he was feeling because he got hit a lot, he got hurried a lot, um, he was starting to shy away from pressure or get those skittish happy feet that that everyone criticized Kevin Cobb for, and so he had Kevin Cobb like behavior out in the field. His numbers looked like John Skelton, you know, fifty percent of his passes, he's got one hundred and eighty yards, he's got a couple of interceptions. So that's a very John Skelton, Ryan Lindley looking, and he was, with the exception of of the the one play in the middle of the field later in the game to Larry Fitzgerald, there was really nothing down the field that he was hitting. He was not hitting those passes. They were not on target, and we haven't really seen from Carson Palmer what Steve Kime and Bruce Arians were saying is that hey, the guy's got the arm. He can still put that put the ball down the field and put it with with accuracy. We haven't seen much of that yet. Uh, the other part that was wrong is just, even though they had some, I mean, they had four sacks, and I'm I'm going to downplay the four sacks a little bit because three of them came from Darnell Dockett. And that, that's great that Darnell Dockett had, had three sacks, but if you look at it, he was playing against an undrafted guy who, who, was, who was the backup, backup to Jari Evans. And so you know that, that Darnell Dockett now can beat out that guy. He he can outplay that guy, and so we've got some production. Yeah, he got the numbers up there, but even though we're getting the pressure, the pass defense just doesn't look right. I mean, it, it, coming after a year after one of the top pass defenses in the NFL, they just look like a defense. Maybe it's philosophically they're they're going more to be stronger against the run in part, but they just don't look the same. Like you can count on them to get a good defensive stop from a team that passes the ball a lot. Um, one of the things that we saw early, and that happened to be their very successful, their their, their point-scoring drive, is that they ran the ball quite successfully. They they mixed it in. They had Richard Mendenhall. They had Alfonso Smith. Uh, Smith ran great. He had, those, he had three carries for the game, and then he sort of disappeared the rest of the game. He had the touchdown. He had the big 21-yard run, and then he disappeared. Yeah inexplicably uh, what what do you guys have to say about the running game up them if you look at the numbers they averaged five and a half yards of carry now a little bit of that granted you got the 21 yard run from alfonso smith you had an 11 yard run by patrick peterson on a reverse you also had a 14 yard run from andre ellington and after that it was a lot of the shorter things but in the end, 86 yards, five and a half yards of carry. Why did they run the ball more? And why did they get rid of it so – why did they abandon it so early? What What do you guys think about kind of getting away from what they were being successful with early on? What, what do you think, Seth? Well, I, I kind of talked about this a lot on Twitter on Sunday, and I just didn't understand what their philosophy was. Um, <clears throat> it was interesting listening to Bruce Arians talk about this post game, and he, he said he thought that – the game was more out of hand than other people did um, earlier than what what a lot of um, fans and other other uh, I don't even know what analysts thought and and I've 
found that kind of interesting because I didn't feel like the game was really that out of hand until maybe about halfway through the third quarter, and it still wasn't even that out of hand score-wise. But they stopped running the ball basically after the first series. I think I charted they had five or six carries on the first series, and they ended up with 11 the rest of the game. So that kind of is a cop-out in my mind. Um, He went away from that balanced attack that they had on that first drive, and what that says to me is that once the – this, the play calling script ran out or, you know, when they script their first drive, once that ran out, he kind of reverted back to, I'm going to throw the ball down the field and make big plays. And that's what I'm going to do. And, uh, you know, against a very active and athletic front four and against a, um, improved secondary, you can't really do that, especially when it still looks like Larry Fitzgerald is kind of struggling with that hamstring because we see now for two weeks that if Larry isn't demanding a double team, um, the other wide receivers aren't going to be getting open on their own. So it's, you know, for me, it was a lot of, it was interesting that despite the the pass game being not strong at that time, they they leaned on it heavily, acting like th- that was the way to go, and and that just seemed weird to me. Give us your take, Ben. What what's your takeaway from from the running game or the lack thereof after having the success early in the game? Well, I'm kind of like Seth. I don't understand it, and I can't explain it. <laughs> but I can talk about it a little bit. I was I was happy to see uh, Smith and Ellington. They both looked pretty good. It, it was fun watching Ellington the way they were using him. Uh, they motioned him out wide a couple of times. They lined him up at fullback, and I think he took at least one end around uh, a little bit later on in the game. That was that was pretty cool. He has a nice burst. He's, I mean, he looked good out there. Um, Smith was able to show off his speed a couple of times, which has been nice. Uh, he's, you know, he's he's showed up pretty well all year, but he really hasn't gotten into the open space to really kind of spin the wheels and you know show us what kind of speed he has. So it was it was cool seeing him break break a couple of decent gains off there. But I think I I have to think that either. Mendenhall himself was a big part of the issue with him being limited in practice and such. Um, his yards per carry on the day were not very good, and I don't know if that was because he was just kind of banged up with his toe or if the Saints were just playing the run that well. I know Arian said that his injury is similar to turf toe, which usually lingers. Um, and then we had Smith and Ellington. I mean, they were they were pretty involved in the in the offense from the very get-go, so... We can we can pretty well assume that they expected Mendenhall would be limited in the game. I think it's just that they. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Again, they just they didn't run it, and I don't know why. They started with that beautiful drive. Uh, and then in uh, the second quarter, even as early as the second drive, I think they went into these four and five wide shotgun sets, and they just never went away from them. I I don't know if they were trying to open up the run a little bit more with the pass. Um, I, I don't really think they were, because you know you wouldn't line up in all these empty shotgun sets if if that's what you're doing. So so I don't know. We don't we don't really need five backs on the roster if you're only going to run it 15 times a game. I'm just going <laughs> to point that out. And well, I'm gonna throw and, this out there again. Go, go ahead, Seth. Go ahead. I'll, I'll just say, Ben, the reason uh, Mendenhall wasn't impactful is because he's just not that great. So he, that's part of the reason <laughs> that it oh, is. There's I mean, negative Seth. There's negative yeah. Seth again. Shots fired. No, no, it's just you know a lot of people 
gave me crap for this, but he is Beanie Wells. I mean, he's a lot like Beanie Wells. He's going to get a lot of two-yard, one-yard, no-yards, and then he's going to break a eight-yard, and you're like, okay, here it comes, here it comes, and then you get a lot of two, three-yard carries, and then you'll get a 10-yard carry, and you're like, oh, okay, it's about to start again, and, and that's just how he's always ran the football. It's not a bad thing. It's just that's who he is. Um and, you know, you can tell that his legs are kind of betraying him at only 24 or 25, however old he is. And so it's, you know, it's it's an issue. And, and he doesn't have, you know, the burst that these young guys have. And, and um, Jess, you talked about this a little bit in the preseason, but Alfonso's just running much harder than he ever has before. And so that's, you know, we know he's a 4-3 speed guy, but now he's playing like a 4-3 speed guy when he gets the ball in his hand. So that's, you know, all of a sudden you have two much more quick backs in uh, Ellington and, and Alfonso. And so I think, you know, even if you're splitting carries between the two of them and still giving Mendenhall 15 carries a game to be kind of your grinder, um, you know, you want to get to the 30 carry range. And if that's, you know, that that needs to be the goal. And when you're only getting 15, you know, 16 total carries a game, and one of those is on an end around to Patrick Peterson, I don't think you're utilizing one of your strengths very well. Well, it's really a couple of things that that's kind of developing as we see the year go through is that you can tell that Bruce Arians is really starting to love himself some Andre Ellington. Uh, they're finding ways to put him out in the field. Um, I counted 11 times in which they ran plays with two back formations, something that isn't very Bruce Arians-like. And and they've used Ellington. There was three or four plays when he was used as a as a blocker when he was when he was lead blocking like a fullback. And Arians isn't very big on fullbacks, but I think when you get a guy like Ellington who's big enough to to throw his body around and make make a block, who can catch the ball and who can run, that's better than, than, than a fullback that he have. Another thing, it, it, and I'm going to throw this out here again, and some people are going to get upset about it, is guess guess who Bruce Arians is? He's Ken Wisenhunt, only older and a better quote. The same things Bruce Arians has done the first the first few games. If we look, He started off running the ball well, looked scripted, play, but then what happened? He bailed on the running game, and he talked about how the game we got in the way early start passing the ball, passing the ball, passing the ball, passing the ball, passing the ball. That's no different than than Kenny Wisenhunt, who was here, and people started to hate. Now, again, I was never and I never had a problem with Wisenhunt. Um, it was just kind of his course. I mean, Andy Reid's a great coach, but when is he? What is he terrible? He's terrible at game management at the end of games. He's as, a, as a good a coach as he is. He's really terrible at it. But Arians, I want to get this across, despite the the words and the quotes and, and the funny and, and the way that he talks in the bald head, he's really not much different than Ken Wisenhunt. And I'm, I'm seeing that. And, but yeah, take away from that, the running game, they should have done it. I mean, obviously they should have done it more. I, 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 in one case, I'm actually very pleased in one thing about the running game based on, uh, as opposed to last year, they may not be busting off a lot of big games, but when they do run the ball, they are not getting those zero and negative plays that they had a season ago. Yes, they're going to have a one or two yard game, but you're going to see, you see more two and three yard pickups, even if the at the worst. And, and I I am going to I'm going to give them credit, the offensive line credit, the the running backs credit, because the last two years has been truthfully years in general, it's been awful the number of zero gain and negative plays that we've had in the running game over the years. Now. The offense obviously struggled. And, and again, Cardinals fans, if you want to give us a call and you give us your thoughts, whether it be the offense, we're still talking about the, the Cardinals-Saints game, and we're going to continue to do so and the kind of the aftermath and things that happen. You can give us a call at 646-478-3787. Again, 646-478-3787. This is Revenge of the Birds Radio. And I'm Jess Root, your host. We've got Seth and Ben on the line. Uh, the offense obviously struggled. However, one, one thing that has kind of been overlooked probably because of the reputation over the years is just how good is the Saints defense? When I had uh, Dave Cariolo on, on the show last week on Thursday, as we previewed our, our, our game on the show last week, 
the one thing that he couldn't say enough about was the change in the defense and how pleased Saints fans are on the defense. And I want to put it out for you guys. If you were to lay blame or give credit for what happened to the Cardinals offensively, how much of it do you believe was simply the Cardinals not being in sync yet, just not having a good game, struggling because it's on the road and a loud stadium? And how much of that is the fact that, hey, the Saints just might be pretty dang good defensively? Um, what, what do you think about that, Ben? Well, the Saints defense definitely did what you want your defense to do. They created pressure. They swarmed to the ball. Uh, their corners were pretty much always in position. Their safeties were able to give them help when they needed it. Um, and again, it's tough to beat a defense that can get to your QB with only four guys, and they did that consistently all day. But I, I really think that the Cardinals played right into their hands, you know, with the just pass, 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 uh, the, the four and five wide sets. Um, and the Cardinals tried to adjust from, from that game plan. And in the third in the third quarter, they did run it a little bit. Um, uh, um, their first, they only had two drives, and they did try to run it a little bit, but those drives were killed by incomplete passes, sacks, and penalties. So, you know, and then at that point, you're in the fourth quarter, you've squandered every opportunity, and now you're in a hole, and you have to pass it. Um, and that again, it just plays right into the the defense's hands. And what do you know? The defense or the pass, the pass wasn't working earlier. It didn't work at the end of the game either. Um, I don't like to give a lot of credit to Rob Ryan, <laughs> so it's it's my opinion more so that. The offense dug themselves a hole with with the play calling, and they just couldn't get out of it. Um, you look at the Saints' D; they played Tampa's offense in Week Two. Uh, they they're not they haven't done much, and the, obviously the Cardinals struggled mightily against them. So I think you can probably look at the Saints' D and say that maybe maybe they're not right where they're going to be at the end of the season right now. Like they yeah they are playing well, but if you look at the teams that they've played, they're probably a little bit a little bit overrated at the moment. I think for you know just the total defensive yards and stats like that. Well, when you hold when you hold Atlanta to 23 points, you, you could probably put that on a, at least a feather in your cap, in my opinion. I mean, the Cardinals' head defense was fantastic last year, and that's exactly kind of what they did that to, to to Atlanta last year. Seth, what do you think when it comes to is it how much blame would you put on the Cardinals' offense, and how much credit do you give to the New Orleans' defense? I think it's fairly 50-50. I think you can't really take away a lot of what they did defensively because they they were able to completely shut down the passing game of the Cardinals, which, you know, if you asked anybody, you know, uh, coming into the season, you know, are the Cardinals going to get shut down offensively? Everybody would say, oh, no, you know, this offense is completely superior to every, you know, everything about last year's offense. And, and through three games, Really, other than yards wise, it's not. I mean, they're not. You know, they're there's no, they're not throwing as many touchdowns. They're running the ball similarly well through the first three games. Now, obviously, we're not to the point where the cliff. You know, everything fell off the cliff yet. But it's just, it's just like I said, it's about timing. But it's also the fact that the Saints were able to disrupt the Cardinals' timing. Um, as Ben has stated numerous times during this podcast already. They were winning, you know, up front with just bringing four guys. So you have seven guys in coverage going against a maybe 85% Larry Fitzgerald. And even though 85% of Larry Fitzgerald is better than, you know, what most teams get out of 100% of their wide receivers, it's still not good enough when you have to speed up your process, when you're trying to get rid of the ball early, um, when you're trying to do things that you really shouldn't be doing. And, and now it's, you know, like I said earlier, it's to the point where you kind of become concerned about Palmer and the fact that he's getting a little skittish in the pocket already. You know, he's moving, you know, he's got the happy feet. He's moving around more than you would want him to. And, you know, he's he's missing a lot of open players. And when he's not missing players, when he's got time and when he makes the correct reads, he's, you know, he's not, he doesn't have, guys getting open because if Fitzgerald isn't isn't drawing people um you know Roberts, Hausler, Floyd they're not winning one on one and that's you know that's a concern because it, that you know they were all supposed to be the next guys and it doesn't seem like they're fulfilling that right now. Well, if we if we look at 
I'm actually going to jump scripts a little bit from, from what I sent you guys earlier, and I'm going to jump to, since we're talking about the offense, about Carson Palmer and kind of his decline. I've, I've got some numbers here over the first three weeks that that will probably be, you know, you're going to be a little bit concerned, a little bit, at least a little bit concerned. Percentage, his, his passes completed, his completion percentage, week one, 65%, week two, 56%. Week three, 51%. Yards per tent. Week one, 8.18. Week two, 6.36. And week three, 5.34. You go to the touchdown interception, two touchdowns for and a pick week one, one touchdown, one pick in week two, and then zero, pick, zero touchdowns and a pair of picks in week three. When you see numbers like that, how much concern does that cause you? Especially now, I, I, this was on, on, on a more satirical piece on, on SBNation.com um, as they kind of took the negative from every single play, death by, well, the time of death, had the class. Uh, it was the interception. In fact, this is the point in which during the game that I felt basically is where the game was lost. Is Was that interception, that first interception by Palmer when he has Hausler open and just throws it way past him, and it gets picked off there in the red zone. Uh, he, he continued that drive. They put points on the board. They're still in the game. But going back to this, um, the satirical piece, it says, this confirms that Carson Palmer is one of the more unstable elements occurring in nature, in nature, decaying at a rate that will leave him completing two passes for less than a yard and 11 picks by week nine. Now, now yes, that's a little – obviously, that's, that's extreme – how much do you guys are you concerned about the fact that his numbers have been in every in every part of the passing game have been in decline for the first three weeks of the season? Uh, ben, how much are you concerned about that? Well, you know, it's always a concern when your when your quarterback is not playing well. Uh, I think we've said it just about every week on the podcast. We were saying it back when we signed him. If he can get the ball out quickly and accurately, he can hide some of the line's problems. But right now, he's not helping the line, and they're not helping him. So you know, I don't I don't know where. All the fault lies right now. It, it seems to be pretty solidly on both. Um, we can, like that SB Nation uh, piece said, we can pretty much count on him for at least one boneheaded interception each week. But you know, beyond that, he's he's played pretty well for the most part, except really except against New Orleans. I think uh, it it kind of looks to me like he's throwing into coverage a little bit too often. I don't know if he's just not reading things right. Maybe he's staring down receivers. Um, maybe the protection is just not giving him enough time to really read the field. Um, yeah, I'm kind of worried about it. I think having Hauser back should help a little bit. Um, he he played 40 snaps against New Orleans. I think he only had like four targets, you know, so it's not like they really used him that much. And two or three of those were disastrous throws by Palmer, you know. So having him having him in sync with Palmer will help a little bit. Um, having Fitzgerald getting back to full strength, hopefully, hopefully that Hammy won't be holding him back too much longer. Um, Another thing with the tight ends, they weren't really motioning them either to create the mismatches that you kind of want to see, you know. So you've got one foundation of the Arians' offense, which is two tight ends. You move them around and you disguise your looks. So the D doesn't know what's coming, and they just they pretty much threw that out the window this week because Dre and Sperry were barely on the field. So well, yeah, here, here's the stats: how many snaps they had, how many plays they ran with two tight ends, eight, and yeah. they ran. Then they had. And three, and all three were in the first drive is when they had the three tight ends, all three of them for running plays. And, and two of those plays, I believe, were with – at least one of those plays with an innate potter in the game. But, yeah, so they, the kind of the, the staple of the Aaron's offense wasn't there. Eight yeah. plays where he ran with, in, 12, in 12 personnel. And, and hopefully with, with House returning to practice full-time and everything, we'll, you know, they'll get a little bit more creative with their play design, and we will see that, the two tight end sets and the, the motion and – you know some of the trickery that we've kind of we've kind of been expecting all year, um, and, and hopefully, you know, hopefully that will help the offense in general, and that will help Palmer. And when Palmer plays better, everyone plays better. So, you know, just hopefully, I guess just things will continue to gel. Seth, how concerned are you about Carson? At least looking, seeing those numbers and that decline every single week in every facet. The the concerning thing to me thus far has actually been um, how ineffective he's been deep. But this was something that you know I actually talked about in the preseason, way back in July. I talked about how much 
Palmer struggled in his deep passing game and how, you know, that arm strength wasn't really there anymore like it used to be. Um, he still has the ability to fit the ball into tight windows in that 10 to 19 yard range, but he was struggling to get the ball out past 20 yards and get it out accurately. Um, I have the numbers right here in front of me and he's only completed three passes of 20 yards or more. And, and that's in 13 attempts this year. That's, you know, like like you said earlier, that's a little bit of John Skelt. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You know, type numbers right there. 20, 23% completion. Um, he does have the one touchdown on the on one of the deep plays, but he also has, or excuse me, he has two touchdowns on the deep plays, but he also has one interception. Um, you know, that wasn't something that I was banking on him improving, but I thought it would improve because the Cardinals just frankly have better wide receivers than what he's had since, you know, the Bengals heyday back in the day with Chad Johnson when he was still Chad Johnson and TJ Hushmanzada. And so to see that he's struggling that bad deep and then he's also struggling, you know, and I don't want to say struggling, but he's also not doing as well in the intermediate range as, as he had in previous seasons. He, he's uh, 23 of 41, which again, isn't bad, but that's only 56% completions. And that's, you know, that's not where he was last year. Last year in that range, he was at 66% completions. Now, obviously, it's very, very early in the year, but um, he's on pace to throw um, you know, that intermediate 10 to 19-yard range about 218 times. He only threw that route 114 times last year. So we're talking 100 more throws into that range, and he's dropped, you know, nearly 14 percentage points in that completion percentage. That's something that is actually very concerning to me because if he's going to be throwing that intermediate routes more often and he's struggling to complete it and he's still struggling to complete where he's at in the uh, in, in that deep range, he's really not being effective in what Arians wants to do, attacking the ball downfield or attacking downfield and and then that's not going to open up, you know, other facets of the game. And, and that's kind of where the teams are at this point. They're saying, well, we know you're not going to throw the ball short to open up the deep deep routes. So we're going to sit on these deep routes that you like to run, and we're going to make you, you know, find windows. And they're not finding windows at this point. And – I'm thinking, well, actually what seems to be the most concerning part of the whole thing with is if you look at the past couple of years, how Kevin Cobb started the season. Kevin Cobb's numbers were not bad. Um, however, they just they declined, and then he gets hurt. I, I think we, I'm not sure we could, we're going to be able to count on, I, we can't absolutely count on Carson Pollard being healthy for an entire season, but we are going to see, we, we we get to see how this if he bounces back if he if he if he rides it out if he improves but we're seeing a lot of similarities in the offense last of the past 2 years and or even the, let's say even the last 3 years that the post warner offense it still looks rather post warner offense um just that the potential for being better is there so far um 
Yeah, but, you know, I think we're going to come around. And I, I want to, we've been really down on the Cardinals, and I, I want to put this in perspective. How many people expected the Cardinals to be any better than one and two after three games? I don't think anyone. In fact, some people would have expected them to be 0 and 3. I, I think the best anyone would have figured would be maybe 2 and 1, maybe. Um, but I think most people had people had the Cardinals coming out of the, this three game set, this first three games is 1 and 2. Did you, Seth, Ben, did you guys expect anything better out of the Cardinals coming into the year? I think for me, at least, what I expected was the offense to be playing at a higher level. I've actually been really impressed with what Bowles has done defensively. And so when you had some, when you've seen the improvement, or not even improvement, that's not the right word, but when you see that the defense didn't really lose much in terms of effectiveness, but then the new offense that we've all been waiting to kind of come out of its shell hasn't been unveiled yet. I think that's where my concern is more than anything because the defenses don't get any worse coming up. And that's what I guess concerned me is that you had, and and this isn't to take anything away from the saints or the lions or the Rams, but you had three games in which you had secondaries with question marks to kind of get right before you got into the the teeth of your your league and and I know the the Panthers in in neck or a week from now don't have a great secondary but you're you're coming into the the Bucks you know the 49ers and the Seahawks and all those teams have really good secondaries and you're still struggling to find your you know your rhythm as a passing team that's that's what is more concerning than anything else and that's actually what is more disappointing to me than anything else and i had them at 1 and 2 at this point so i think it's just the lack of um steps forward on o- offense that is concerning to me ben did you did you have anything that aside from how they've looked did you expect more from the Cardinals, at least record-wise, than what they've done so far? Did you expect them to be better than one and two? Um, I mean, I didn't really go through the schedule at the start of the season and kind of pick and choose, you know, point out, well, this guy's this is going to be a loss, this is going to be a win. So I, we lost to the Rams at home. That's, you know, it happens. We, we can still split with them. Uh, it would be better than last year, and, and that would be fine. We lost to the Saints at home. You know, everybody's going to lose to the Saints at home. So it hurts to see those games. <laughs> but for me, you know, I expected the Cardinals to be in games. I knew we were going to lose a few, at least a few. But I expected them to be, to be you know, competitive and to play well. And pretty, they, they've pretty well done that. I, they had a chance. They had a very good chance to beat the Rams still, even even at the very end of the game. And then against New Orleans, they just kind of piddled away at, you know, their opportunities, but they, they hung in there at least for a while. I expected a little more from the offense like Seth, and I'm, but the defense, I guess, has probably done a little bit better for us than I was anticipating. So, uh, yeah, one and one and two is probably about right. I'm hoping I'm hoping we can beat the Bucks, and then we'll just see where it goes from there. Well, truthfully, if they pull, if they come away with a win on Sunday, they're two and two. I, I think probably most considered that, that one and three, that two and two is the absolute best case scenario. And you think about the context of, hey, they did that without Daryl Washington, one of their best players on their defense. And you're actually doing you're in a good spot. I mean, one and three is probably what most expected. Oh, and forward would have kind of been reaching disaster area. One and three, what most people expected. Two and two would be absolutely fantastic. I think at this point, even before seeing how the games have been played. So we talked about the offense a little bit. The defense has really suffered. I mean, we have mentioned at the beginning of the show. And again, you're listening to Revenge of the Birds Radio. This is your host, Jess Rue. We've got Ben and Seth on the line. If you have any comments, any questions, any complaints, anything you'd like to get off your chest regarding the Cardinals, especially specifically coming off the Saints' loss, uh, you give us a call at 646 646- Four seven eight three seven eight seven. Again, this is Revenge of the Birds Radio, and we're going to talk about now the the defensive side of the ball. Particularly, that was a really costly game. The Cardinals lost both starting outside linebackers for this season, both Lorenzo Alexander and Sam Acho. The the kind of the unfortunate thing is Acho, who was kind of almost invisible, at least in my from from my vantage point. 
Bacha looked almost invisible the first couple of weeks of the season, and then came up with a big. He he looked like he was playing with better energy. Maybe the matchup was better. He got the sack. He was in on more plays out in the field, and he breaks his leg. And it's something very similar to Jonathan Cooper's injury. Lorenzo Alexander, after making the tackle, has a foot injury. It's it's a Liz Franck. He's done for the season. Uh, the Cardinals lose Rashad Johnson during the game. He he is not done for the season, fortunately. However, he did create uh, – he was a big blow in the, in the secondary, and you'll notice that at his departure from the safety position – and and he's he had the – he, he's been around Twitter, it's been on the news, it's been on TV, it's been on the radio, that he lost the tip of his finger on a punt play. Uh, he comes off the field, his finger hurts, it's numb, it's bleeding – Cuts the glove off and oh wait, his finger's bleeding and the tip of his finger's still inside of his glove. Uh, he I, he tweeted out a picture of it after after the surgery was done where they had the bone shaved down a little bit so it would look so they could heal it up, stitches up. I, I posted that that picture on in an article online on Revenge of the Birds last night and it's really kind of gruesome. But he he hopes to play this Sunday. Um, I don't know if he will because he's got to work on the pain management. He's got to be in a position to where infection's not going to be an issue. But but losing Johnson, he's really kind of a, a quietly important player because of his skill set. He plays well in coverage. He's not going to put up huge numbers, but his presence is is there. It affects the whole defense. And then the, the most recent news came out this afternoon when Bruce Aarons was on SiriusXM Radio and, and announced that rookie Alex Okafor, he's now done for the season with a torn biceps injury. So that's one, two, three outside linebackers that they've lost for the entire season. Now they replaced, they picked up Vic Soto um, today. They added Bruce Taylor to the practice squad. They elevated Dante Moak to the active roster, and then they also brought in Kevin Demons. Um, to the from the practice squad to the active roster, I I, I posted this on Twitter. I, I tweeted this out not too long ago this evening after the news of Okafor. The Cardinals now at that position are going to have to have a huge season from John Abraham. Uh, he's going to get a lot more playing time. I I, I was kind of going to plan on it. But we didn't know what kind of what we're going to do for the starting. How we look at the rotation. The thing is kind of set in stone now. Um, I was hoping maybe that we could see Okafor worked into the rotational limit. Maybe if he brought in a passing downs, perhaps not bring him, bring him as a, putting in a starter. But it looks like pretty much now you've got John Abraham on one side and Matt Shaughnessy on the other side at outside linebacker, who were, in reality, they were the nickel guys. So Alexander Notch would come off the field and Shaughnessy and Abraham would come on in passing downs. Now they're your every down guys. After that, you're going to have Dante Moak. Hopefully, he can make an impact. He he played. He's got the speed and, and the potential to be really great off the edge. But he was playing at defensive end in Cincinnati. Uh, now he gets uh, probably his skill set fits the outside linebacker mold better. Then we have what? What do we do? I mean, obviously the starters we're going to see Shaughnessy and Abraham. But what should we do after that? Do, do we need to make any moves? Do we need to shift anybody around? And, and in the meantime. How concerned are you guys for the secondary if Johnson has to miss any more time? Obviously, that puts Teron Matthew back at, at the safety position to start, which moves. And apparently, guess who's passed up Antoine Quezon in the depth chart? That would be Javier Arenas because it was Javier Arenas in the game on Sunday instead of Quezon in those nickel packages. Um, let's start with you, Ben. If you had to piece together the defense at this point, what would that rotation look like for you? Well, I'm okay with uh, with uh, Matthew and Jefferson. I think they've they've played really well for us. Matthew's been one of our best defenders at this point in the year, so I'm not too worried about if if, if RJ misses a week. I think we'll be okay there. Uh, I'm more I'm more worried about the the outside linebackers. I was really excited to see Oak for he he flashed a little bit in the preseason. I thought I um, and he was he was all over the field on special teams against New Orleans. Um, you know, I, I think for Rossmeyer, they're pretty much done what they're going to do this week. They just kind of band-aid it. Um, we get Darrell Washington back soon. We'll, we'll see how RJ is doing. You know, if he's day to day or, or what have you, then, then that's that's not too bad. Um, and again, getting Washington back would be huge. Um, I I don't know too much about Soto. Uh, I've I looked around a little bit when I saw we signed him. I think he's a career special teamer. Maybe. Uh, hopefully, we won't see him on defense too much. I guess. Um, and I know, 
Moke has been at least Moke has been here, you know, a couple of weeks. So he 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 should know enough by now to to play some. I think he'll probably be in a rotation with Abraham. I'm guessing. Um, and we'll see a lot of Shaughnessy. Obviously, he played a lot in New Orleans with the with the injuries as they were happening, and I'm, he'll continue to play a lot. Um, as far as Abraham playing more, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, in the preseason, at least, I noticed he was he was at his best when he was coming off the bench rather than he was playing long extended drives. So, you know, we'll see we'll see how that works out this week because I don't think they have any choice but to play him a lot, and then, then maybe they'll uh, kind of work on the rotation a little bit more going forward. What about you, Seth? How how would you how would you think with the rotation? Would you just stick with lots of Shaughnessy and Abraham? Do you do you work in Moke? Do you move anybody around? First on uh, what Ben mentioned about Moke being in in here for a couple of weeks and learning the system. One of the reasons he didn't play in Cincinnati was because he could never pick up the system, um, and he was there for over two years. And then they finally just gave up on him after investing a third round. Oh, that's pick. So, so that that was one. That was one of the concerns with him. Now, coming to a 3-4 defense, he may be able to just uh, kind of pin his ears back on passing downs and go after the quarterback, which is what his specialty kind of was in college. But, um, yeah, that's a concern. One of the things that I think is underlooked upon at this um, at the losses of Otro and Alexander, you know, kind of the roles they played in, in the run defense, um, they – they did both of them do a really good job setting the edge, forcing plays back inside, allowing um, Shaughnessy and Campbell and Dan Williams when he's in there, and even Darnell Dockett at times, and then the linebackers and Dansby and Brinkley to clean things up. And and you know now it's going to be a finesse guy in Abraham who's and he's not really a finesse guy, but he's not as physical as he was, you know five even six years ago, and now you have, you know, who knows what on the other side. You're going to line Shaughnessy up, and Shaughnessy's played well against the run, but more from a down lineman position than uh, an up standing up position. The guy that I would like to see to get some more reps, especially if, um, and, and rightfully so, if Dan Williams is still on a bereavement-type leave, is uh, is Alameda Te'amu, um, who is just you know, kind of a bull at the point of attack defensively and, and can do a really good job. Um, the Cardinals are going to be tested the next four weeks uh, trying to stop the run now. Um, like, like I said, they they had really, really good numbers against some not great running teams, and now the script is kind of flipped on what offenses, offensive-type um, teams are going to be playing, and it's going to be a lot of running Teams and it's starting this week with Doug Martin and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So that's one of the things, and that's one of the things that they'll actually miss if Rashad doesn't play is his run defense. Um, as much as you know, we talk about Matthew and 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 Jefferson, and, and both of them have played very well. Um, they haven't done it, you know, as many snaps as Johnson has in in the run defense, and so that that's kind of a concern. So. I mean, you're you're not going to be able to. I know I've, I've seen some people talk about, oh, it's time to go to a four-three. Listen, I'm I'm all for that, but it's not a one-week process. It's something that you start sprinkling in. And they have played some four-man fronts, but I I'm more concerned with what they're going to do with the linebackers. And maybe they'll we'll see more of that kind of big nickel um, look. And but they'll uh, they'll just keep Tony Jefferson and. Bell on the field and and Matthew or Arenas, however they want to play it, and and get some really solid run defensive um, looks going on as opposed to playing. I I don't really know what Bowles was playing against um, in, in New Orleans because Tony Jefferson only got six snaps, so that was kind of odd to see. But I um, I'm rambling at this point. Sorry, but it, <laughs> well, it's just, I, let me let me throw some numbers out at you then. Because I, I think after our discussion last week, I think it made very clear this. Oh, with the, the way they played against Detroit, that we were going to see a lot more of that against against New Orleans, and that was not the case. In fact, they played. They were 38 snaps. 38 of the 74 snaps they were in their base defense with the three, four, four, three, and and really. Uh, and Ben, you actually made the comment online about this. Now, when I chart the plays, I'm looking at how many guys have their hand on the ground. And, and Shaughnessy, 
Shaughnessy, you point out how he's out wide. I, I, as I look back on the game, he's almost always lined up like an outside linebacker would be, but it's almost like since his background is at defensive end, he just prefers to go with his hand on the ground and and play outside with his hand on the ground. And so they they played 38 snaps in that base defense. They played, let's see how many they had, 30 snaps in nickel, and that big nickel or dime where they had six defensive backs on uh, seven defensive backs, uh, six defensive backs on the field, where they ran it what I think 30 some odd times last week against Detroit, five times against New Orleans. That that was the biggest shock to me is I thought we were going to see that a whole bunch, and we hardly saw it at all even after the injuries. We didn't even see one five-man line. They went with eight defense. They went with five linemen, five down linemen, and three linebackers on one play. It ended up being a loss on that play. Um, my take on, on, on everything that I see is uh, clearly we have to use Shaughnessy and Abraham. We're going to expect big things out of them. I don't know how much we can expect out of Mook. And that's the thing. Moving to a 4-3 or 3-4, they've been kind of playing like, when Shaughnessy's on the field. It's somewhere in between because he does play down on the ground, but he's out sometimes on the ground, but as a linebacker. I would not be surprised, and we're going to have to weather one more week. Personally, I think what I would do, because we also have the depth, some depth at inside linebacker, assuming Kevin Minter gets gets healthy again, bring back Daryl Washington, and, and something that we might consider doing, at least for some plays, is moving D- Carlos Dansby on the outside, he hasn't done it in the 3-4 before, but I know when he first was with Arizona, he played outside as a 4-3 as a guy. Uh, so he has experience on the outside. I think he's he's smart enough and good enough to do that. I, I would give him some looks there, and it would also allow you to keep Dansby and Washington to the field, on the field more and, and allow Brinkley or Minter to come in the game, and that way you've got them both, all three of those guys out in the field on, on some plays. Uh, would you guys consider? I, I, that, I'm just throwing that out there because that's one of the things I thought. Well, Dansby probably could move outside, or even we might even see Daryl Washington a little bit on the outside because he's definitely talented enough to do that. Any thoughts on that? They used Reggie Walker that way last year a little bit, and I, I didn't think it really. I didn't think it really worked out that well. He just didn't have the skill set to really be a pass rusher, and um, Dansby and Washington are a little bit more prone to that, I think, because they've done it a little bit more throughout their career. I mean, obviously, everyone knows how good Washington was last year. Um, blitzing, of course, you know, blitzing through the A-gap is a little bit different than setting an edge and, and lining up outside in the C-gap, but it's a possibility. I think as a stopgap, we'll probably see the inside backers taking snaps there, especially bringing Kenny Demenz up. Um, it's just a little bit more depth at inside linebacker, and he'll probably mostly be playing special teams, if anything. I think I think that that move is all because Minter is probably not going to be playing uh, this week. But as far as long term, I, I'm not in love with, with the idea um, of of putting Washington or Dansby at outside linebacker um, because having both of them at inside linebacker means that uh, Brinkley isn't playing as much. Uh, personally, I think I would probably look to to snipe a player off of a practice squad somewhere. Um, I took a look around there. You know, there's some interesting names. There always are, but. Either that, or maybe trade our um, our fifth running back for uh, for someone. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> now, go go ahead, say. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, you and I had actually had a conversation similar similar to this um, right before training camp, and kind of the four three under over type looks that I said I thought would play to this defense's strength once. Washington got back. Um, so that might be something to keep an eye on because it allows um, – I know we, we don't want to see as much of Brinkley, but he's been really good against the run. And like I said, we're we're, gonna, we're going to see some really dominant running teams coming up here. And and that puts – that puts their – you know, that puts Dansby as a strong side linebacker and that allows Washington to play kind of in that – playmaking outside linebacker position that's more uh, like an inside linebacker and you know without without a pass rusher on the edge you're you're not really taking anything away from the 3-4 look but if they if they stay in the 3-4 
the guy that I would rather kind of put on the edge in specific situations would be Washington, and he's never really done it. But I just think with his athleticism on the edge, you might be able to get some type of pass rush. Obviously, this is a week off right now, but um, you just look at what they're going to do this week, and they're just going to have to kind of find a way to to you know plug plug the holes right now and. And I'm not as worried about it as I normally would be because the Tampa Bay offense has just been terrible throwing the ball. So, um, I, I, you know, having Dansby and Brinkley in there another week is going to actually be good to combat this Buccaneers defense or offense. So it's not going to be as bad as everyone is thinking, I think, at least. I was no. happy you mentioned Te'amu. Um earlier, Seth, because I thought he played really well versus New Orleans, but I've been happy with how Dan Williams has played, for the most part, too. He plays the run really well, um, which kind of create, creates a conundrum for the team, because now they have two nose tackles, but nose tackle, you know, barely play. I mean, barely plays what, like half of the snaps on defense, so do you think maybe maybe it's possible we'll maybe take a, a page out of Seattle's book and do kind of like an elephant look with just three big linemen and one, one edge rusher, or I think that would be a possibility for the scheme, or so I think that's probably more likely than doing just a, a four three explicitly, you know. Yeah, I mean, you look at what they have personnel wise and Williams and Teamu in the middle is, you know, it's going to stop any run game kind of in its tracks. They're they're not going to be the uh Indomica Sudnik fairly type where they're playing upfield, but they're going to be more of the, you know, just eat up blockers and be able to take up space and, and allow other guys to make plays. Um, the only problem with anything like that is then you're you're kind of limiting yourself because as good as Calais Campbell is, um, he's not super athletic off the edge, you know, rushing the passer. He's more of a interior dominant pass rusher off the edge, if that makes any sense whatsoever. So he's not going to be able to win a lot of things. Coming off that, and you know, in a league where even you know, even though we talked about five teams in a row that they're going to face that run the ball really well, you still need to be able to rush the passer at any time, and and you know they don't really have that on their roster. But putting it, playing in that elephant type defense, um, you're you're even going to handicap yourself more because Te'amu and Williams are not going to get any type of push in the pass rush whatsoever. Well, here's an interesting tidbit, and I, I'm just gonna, I I noticed this, and I and I think it might have a little bit to do uh, with some of the the Saints, at least a little bit. Um, you know the the Saints and the after the Cardinals cut him picked up Senior Calamete and put him on the practice squad. Now two days later, after the Saints have played the Cardinals, you know who longer has a job would be Mr. Calamete. Uh, I think in part that they they looked forward to that and they had a strategic roster spot for it, at least to get a little bit inside of what the Cardinals were doing offensively. Because one of the things that that Carson Palmer had said in the off season is that there's not going to be a lot of tape on what the Cardinals want to do offensively, which gives them at least an advantage initially during during the year. Um, just throwing that out there, there might have been a little bit of strategery going on with the Saints in the first couple of weeks, knowing that. Hey, we've got a guy that was in, running that system in practice, and let's let's take advantage of that. And now that we're done, well, thanks for thanks for having you. You earned a few thousand dollars. Enjoy your next stop in life. Uh, what do we have to look forward to the Saint, uh, for the Bucks? Actually, so we look at the Bucks for next week. Where do the Cardinals match up well, and where do they not match up quite so well? If, if, if what do you think, Ben? Um, well. I I, uh, I haven't watched the Bucks really, but <laughs> I looked them over a little bit. Uh, I noticed that most of their sacks had come from their inside linebackers. So, you know, you'd think that would help us a little bit. I think take a little of the pressure off of Levi, hopefully. Um, but I've I've also read that uh, at defensive tackle Gerald McCoy is playing really really well, and uh, it looks like Adrian Claiborne is uh, playing well at defensive end too. So, you know, either, either way, it's going to be a tough matchup. Their defense is playing really really well overall. Um, I think Mark Barron is doing a pretty good job at safety, although maybe he was struggling in coverage. I'm not really sure, but uh, I'm a bit worried because both offenses are sputtering. So it's you know it's going to be a defensive a defensive struggle, I'm sure. Um, and the Cardinals being 0-2 on the road, 
that's that's kind of a worry. The defense getting crushed by injuries, that's that's kind of a worry. But we'll we'll see how that all shakes out. I think it's a winnable game, but I don't know. You know, fourteen <laughs> ten maybe something like that. What what do you say, Seth? Where do you where do you like the Cardinals matchups and don't like their matchups against Tampa? I like the fact that the Cardinals strength defensively matches up with the what has been the Bucks strength offensively thus far. Um, you know, the Bucks run the ball extremely well and the Cardinals defend the run extremely well. So that kinda of works out for them in this week. Um you know, Josh Freeman has I don't I, I don't no, I mean, if you if you've watched any of what Freeman's done thus far, it's not it hasn't really been pretty. Um, it's it's not even really fun to watch. Freeman used to be kind of fun to watch, and now all of a sudden he's just awful. I mean, he's completing forty five percent of his passes. It's just been really bad, and you just you watch what they do offensively, and it's you know it's a lot of it's a lot of hand the ball off to Doug Martin, hand the ball off to Doug Martin, okay, let's throw it to Vincent Jackson type thing. So this kind of plays into the strength of the Cardinals' defense, and I think, as Ben said, we could see a very low-scoring game. The problem is going to become, can they hold down the Bucks' pass rush enough to do anything, you know, through the air? And, you know, so far we haven't, Seen them do that outside of game one, and so now all of a sudden it's the the question becomes: Can they get anything going? You know, Darrell Rivas is going to be all over Larry Fitzgerald, and it's going to be a great matchup to watch. So it's going to again come down to: Can Michael Floyd, Andre Roberts, and Rob Hausler make plays in the passing game when they're not getting single coverage, or when you know Larry's not necessarily the focal point of a bracket coverage or you know a double team. So I think it's going to be a fun game to watch because it's going to have a lot of um inter- interesting and integral matchups that that'll kind of allow this to play out and it's kind of strength versus strength at this point. And like Ben said, both offenses are sputtering, but what the offenses do well is kind of playing into what the defenses do well, so it's going to be a nice chess match to watch. And so we come to the close of our of our Tuesday night show of, of Revenge of the Birds Radio. We've talked about kind of the good and the bad that's happened, and the, as a, you can tell, there wasn't a whole lot of good that came from the game. However, again, we want to keep that in perspective. Three games of the season, one and two. I don't think anyone expected really more of that. They pull out a win here in Tampa. They're two and two, and I think Everyone pretty much would have been happy with that. Any fan would be happy with that, especially without Daryl Washington. Uh, big thanks to you, to you guys, Seth and Ben, for for joining us as you do every week. Uh, we'll be back on the air. I hope to get um, I hope to get one of our Tampa Bay Bucks from Bucks Nation, or one of our guys from from BucksNation.com, to join us to to preview the Buccaneers on Thursday, and then the next time you'll hear from us will be next Tuesday after hopefully an Arizona Cardinals win. On behalf of everyone here at RevengeOfTheBirds.com, I'm Jess Root. You've listened to us. You've got Seth and Ben on the line. Have a good night. Thanks, everyone, for, for listening. Have a wonderful evening. Have a good one, guys. You've been listening to Revenge of the Birds. Keep the conversation going by visiting RevengeOfTheBirds.com. Follow us on Twitter at RevengeOfBirds. You can also find us on iTunes at facebook.com slash revengeofthebirds. 